Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Monday, July 26, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We are mourning the passing of civil rights legend Bob Moses. We'll talk with some of the pioneers of the civil rights movement about his life and legacy uh, as a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but also, also with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Among the folks uh, paying tribute, Reverend Jesse, uh, uh, first of all, among the people paying tribute are people like Charles Cobb, who worked with him, alongside him, you might not know his name, but trust me, he was one of the influential greats. Also, today in Arizona, Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. and Reverend Dr. William J. Barber took place uh, to, to participate in the protest at the offices of Arizona Senator Christian Cinema. 
We'll show you some of that. Also, an attendee at Kentucky Senator Rand Paul's virtual town hall. Let's just say used her time to film exactly how she felt. We'll show you that. Also, 15 years after his death, James Brown's family may have finally settled his estate and thousands of kids now can be impacted with scholarships that he once set up when he died in Wisconsin. Police officers under investigations are being caught on camera planning drugs in a black man's car through the traffic stop. Plus, my book, my book club interview with Audrey Edwards, author of American Runaway, Black and Free in Paris in the Trump Years. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. The public pressure continues on Democratic senators when it comes to ending the filibuster. Today in Arizona, Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, and 30 other protesters were arrested outside of the offices of Christian Cinema. They were there in the heat of Arizona, protesting, fighting on behalf of ending the filibuster to pass the For the People Act. Folks, uh, it's the second time in just over a month that Reverend Barber and Reverend Jackson have been handcuffed and taken away protesting voting rights. Now, earlier today, hundreds of protesters met at Kachina Park in Phoenix to embark on the moral march, the purpose to push Senator Christian Sinema to end the filibuster, to raise the minimum wage, and pass both the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act. Here's Reverend Dr. Barber. Not a fad. It's not a, just a one-time moment. It ought to always be to open up a movement. You heard Reverend Jackson say that it's time for students and others to pour into the streets. And whenever there's a call to action, there must be a certain sound. So I want to do three things. I want to teach three things real quick. First of all, right now in this country, in over 30 states, the Poor People's Campaign and 20 partners, we have delegations visiting senators, Democrat and Republican. They're going into their offices, they're going into their office, and they are asking the question, do you agree with ending the filibuster? Do you agree with passing the Florida People's Act, all provisions of it? Do you agree with passing the Voting Rights Act when it's finally written? Do you agree with $15 living wage and do you agree with protecting our immigrant brothers and sisters and DACA students now if they say yes then those delegations will come out and tell the media if they say no whether they're democrat or republican they're going to sit down and sit. now folks uh like west virginia senator joe manchin cinema is currently not in this on the same page 
as other Democrats about passing these bills. And so uh, Reverend Barber and others say they were going to continue these uh, mass action, these uh, civil, dis civil disobedience uh, protests. Uh, we will be with them tomorrow in Austin, Texas, actually in Georgetown, Texas, which is uh, outside of Austin, Texas, uh, where there will be four days of uh, marches similar to Selma to Montgomery uh, protesting the Texas voter suppression bill and fighting for these very same issues. We will be live streaming uh, these events uh, as well uh, on, uh, on the next several days. Now, uh, I want to go to my panel, joining Dr. Dr. Julianne Malvo. She, of course, is the Dean, College of Ethnic Studies, California State University, LA, Omakongo Dabinga, Professorial Lecturer, School of International Service, American University, Faraji Muhammad, radio and TV host. Folks, glad to have you here. Uh, the pressure is working over the weekend. Virginia Senator Mark Warner came out and announced that he will support a narrow use of ending the filibuster for the purpose of voter reform. That right there, Julian, shows what happens when you have the constant drumbeat of pressure on Democratic senators. Absolutely. Uh, Senator Warner is, is late, but is good. It's uh, so important for these folks to understand the history of the filibuster and what it's about. I just had an argument or a heated discussion, one might say, um, on campus uh, last week with a man who's on our side, pretty much, who told me what the filibuster is in the Constitution. Well, it is not. These myths about the filibuster have to be busted, if you will. And so, as, uh, as Reverend Barber outlined, people go from office to office, raising the question, taking the information. We'll flip a few people. We might not flip enough, but we should be able to flip a few. And as you say, this is really about constant pressure. We know what the filibuster was for historically. We know that it was to deprive black people of their rights. And here we go again. You know, this right here, Omakongo, uh, again, when you talk about the pressure, when you talk about uh, keeping it front and center, that's why there are mass protests. That's why there are marches. That's why you have folks getting arrested. And one of the things I think is also important to see with that is that we see Reverend Barbara, Reverend Jackson, and Reverend Theo Harris, who's a white woman, we're seeing a multiracial coalition and a multi-generational coalition to see those young people up there with our elders, with our leaders who've been marching and fighting for so long. These senators, they need to wake up because there's always this idea of, well, it's going to blow over. Oh, that's just Reverend Jackson and Reverend Barber doing their thing. No, they have always been about building grassroots coalitions. And so what I also love is that kind of going Dr. Marvo was saying, we're, all, we're going towards the Democrats. People talk about the Republicans and all of this. No, we got to put the pressure on the people that we put in the office. And when it comes down to it, when I see that image of, of, of Reverend Jackson marching down there in Texas, and when I think about everything that just him individually, you know, ha has done for us and still doing it, what excuse do we have? And so these senators need to know, Cinnamon Mansion, we're representing the people who come before us, we're representing the people coming after us, and we're not going to stop till we get this done. So you might as well wake up now and get with the program. Uh, Faraj, <laughs> for, Faraji, um, your thoughts on this? Okay. Um, just real quick, I think that it's important that we keep in mind the timing of everything just as much as we talk about um, the actions that are being taken place. The timing of this, you have a new president who's been in office for about six months. You have 
um, a, a fractured Senate, you know, fractured uh, House and Senate. We, we, we are at a different point politically. There is an awakening among a lot of uh, the constituents in the United States. So to have this conversation about ending the filibuster, but most importantly, getting people to organize. I mean, uh, when you start to see white people, young white people walking with Reverend Jackson and Reverend William Barber, uh, when we start to have these bigger conversations about uh, voting rights and, and how has been a, a, a tool, another tool used to deny black people um, the right to vote and just overall the humanity, you know, deny us our humanity in this country. When all of those things are taking place, the timing has to be perfect. And so it is important that we keep that in mind. And I think that we need to keep that at the forefront because if we don't, you know, seize the moment, or as we often hear, if we don't seize the time, then we lose the momentum that we need. You know, we're, we're, we've been talking about this, Brother Rowan, for a minute, the fact that 2022 is just around the corner. So you have to keep that added pressure because the time requires it, not just from the people's side, but from the political side, who knows how things will change in 2022. So it is absolutely uh, important that that pressure is kept on the Biden administration in, in this uh, Congress this year. When we think about what's happening uh, with voting, uh, that, of course, was one of the biggest issues uh, facing African Americans during the 1960s. One of the people uh, who was one of the preeminent strategists during that period uh, was Bob Moses. Uh, we found out on yesterday that Bob Moses had passed away at his home in Hollywood, Florida. He was 86 years old. Um, it, he is, his name is not one that many people would recognize. It is because Bob Moses purposely uh, chose not to make, not to allow himself to be turned into a civil rights celebrity. He wanted the focus to actually stay on the work. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he left the movement uh, in 1964. And then, of course, he began to uh, speak out against the Vietnam War at the first mass rally here in the nation's capital. And five years after uh, his, he was past the age to be drafted, all of a sudden he got draft orders. He and his wife left America, moving to Tanzania. Uh, Bob Moses was the field director for the, uh, the Mississippi field director for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, he, of course, an influential voice, a giant in the movement. Joining us right now uh, are two folks, one who knew him quite well. They worked alongside of each other. He also was the co-author of uh, Bob Moses' book. Glad to have Charles Cobb with us. Uh, Charles, um, it is... Um, you and I talked yesterday, Charles, uh, and uh, he was a towering figure that a lot of people didn't know about. Yes, that's true. But let me add to that, a lot of people didn't know a lot about the struggle that was unfolding in the Deep South. So to talk about it, because it was, it, you, as, again, as you and I were talking, Philip Agnew, uh, told me this great yeah. told me this great story. You know Philip very well, y'all. We of course had the uh, the great Facebook conversation between the two. Right. F Philip said because uh, I was try I was I was I wanted Bob to be a part of one of these conversations, uh, and they politely turned us down. Um, and what was interesting about that was Philip said he said Roland Bob could be sitting at a table 
for dinner and literally say nothing. He said he would just listen, let everybody else talk, and he would just listen and barely say any words. He was share with folks just uh, how he was a quiet force, not one of the folks who's going to be out there giving major speeches and standing in front of the whole world. That is true. But remember, you're talking about speeches, you're talking about rhetoric and the like. Uh, Bob talked to people, ordinary people, and the conversations were fairly straightforward and ordinary. Bob simply was not full of a lot of rhetoric. Uh, it was his, his makeup, his instinct, politically and otherwise, was quiet, direct conversations, trying to encourage people to uh, step forward and take some sort of action. I did get a chance. I, I wanted to act. One of the things that I did, uh, uh, Charles, I've, I've made an effort to to try to sit down and have as many one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations with civil rights veterans uh, leaders. I was really looking forward to uh, 60th anniversary here in D.C. last year. COVID uh, canceled that. You guys are going to have it virtual this year. Uh, and I wanted to be yeah, able to have some. I want to be able to have a lot of some of those conversations. And 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 one of the folks I wanted to talk to was Bob because I, in all the different books I read, it was amazing. I kept seeing coming across his name, and it was interesting because I'm reading these books and I'm going, why is it that I haven't heard more about this guy? Uh, and he was a school teacher in New York who decided after seeing what was happening in Mississippi. He said, I've got to go help. Hello. <laughs> Charles? Hey, how you doing? Uh, Charles Cobb? Yeah. Uh, look, it looks like we lost Charles Cobb. Y'all, let me get, get Charles back. Let me know we have him back. Uh, Dr. Greg Carr, uh, I want to pull you in. Uh, Howard University. Um, uh, he, uh, Greg, just share with us again, uh, as, as as I was saying, it uh, looks like we have Charles Cobb back. So, uh, uh, Charles, I was, ma I was making the point there. Uh, I, was, I was making the point well, there I'm that, really uh, that Bob <laughs> was just a regular, ordinary school teacher, but he saw what was happening in Mississippi, and he said, I need uh, to step up and make a difference. I, I, I need to go to Mississippi. Yes, but it's important to understand in terms of his decision to do that the influence of one of the great figures of 20th century black struggle, Ella Baker, who was really the major influence on Bob. Bob told me once, you know, uh, uh, we were talking about how he got involved. Um, can you hear me? I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, now I can hear you, Charles. Okay, well, to understand what Bob did, you have to understand the influence of Ella Baker, and one of the great figures of 20th century struggle. And Bob told me once, you know, he grew up in New York, in Harlem, and he had no idea. He had been gone to school and learned all about the Cold War and the Iron Curtain. It never occurred to him until he met Miss Baker, and Miss Baker set him on a trip throughout the Black Belt South that there was such a thing as the Cotton Curtain, behind which violence and the denial of political rights was routine and ordinary. 
I mean, it gets to Bob's ability to listen to uh, people. And Miss Baker was the one who gave shape to uh, Bob's thinking. Miss Baker was about 57 years old when she encountered us in SNCC. So she was Miss Baker to us and paid careful attention to. And Bob paid careful attention to her. I say this to say you cannot understand Bob and you cannot understand the continuity of black struggle without bringing up Ella Baker, a name less well known than Bob. Well, what, you well, hear any of yeah, that? Yeah, oh, absolutely, Charles. Well, one, I mean, we, oh. I, I, we talk a lot about Ella Baker on this show uh, because you're right. Yeah. One of the most unheralded, uh, 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 one of the most unheralded activists, uh, if you will, uh, and someone who folks don't know about, but who really was the continuum from yeah. progressive movements in New York to NAACP, to, to uh, SCLC, to SNCC, to women's uh, organizations through the 60s and 70s into the 80s as well. And so, she, I mean, she was, uh, again, the connector, connecting force, if you will, to all of these uh, different uh, organizations. Yes, I mean, all those local NAACP branches in the Black Belt South, a lot of them, were organized by Miss Baker in the 1940s when she was director of branches for the NAACP. SNCC couldn't have done what it did without the backing of all these local NAACP branches. They were Ella Baker's people. And for us to be able to say, as Bob and I often did, uh, we were Miss Baker's people, gave us instant credibility. Tell us uh, about, first of all, uh, we know, of course, uh, we we're talking about his civil rights work, but an extension of that was his belief in teaching black kids math. Uh, you, uh, his, yeah. his book was called, uh, folks, if y'all can pull his book up, Radical Equations, uh, Civil Rights from Mississippi to the Algebra Project. You co-authored uh, that book uh, with Bob. Uh, excuse me. And so just, just share with folks again um, just how he was just so, such a huge believer in teaching our kids math. Well, Bob was really a huge believer in the importance of literacy to struggle. And he made the point over and over again, particularly in talking about the founding of the Algebra Project, there's always been a question of literacy tied to civil rights and freedom. That's why black schools were outlawed uh, in the 18th and 19th century in the days of slavery. That's why you had the kind of segregated schools you had uh, in the uh, 20th century, uh, there's always been a question of literacy tied to civil rights struggle. And Bob's argument with respect to the Algebra Project was that you need to put math literacy next to reading and writing literacy in order to have full citizenship in the 21st century when what was the industrial era that had defined America was now uh, also becoming a technological era in which math and algebra were much, much more important. And uh, 
So Bob was making the case that you could not be a full citizenship without complete literacy, uh, that uh, you could not go to college in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, and walk through the doors and say, oh, I never did get that reading and writing stuff. Uh, you could go to college at that same period and, and say, and I never did get that math stuff. And Bob wanted math placed right next to literacy and reading, right next to reading and writing if, you know, if a person was going to function as a complete citizen. And math, he felt, was the key to developing a kind of literacy uh, that he wanted to. And he argued politically that the state deliberately kept young black people illiterate when it came to math. That's sort of the first short, compressed version of Bob's thinking. Um, uh, it, it really meant, in his way of thinking, math literacy was a civil rights issue. It was connected to full citizenship, and he was able, as a mathematician himself, uh, able to begin designing a program that combated that deliberate illiteracy or what he would call sharecropper education. Mm. North or South, sharecropper education assumed there's a place in the lowest ranks of society, the, the lowest ranks of society was where black people belong. And they set up the whole system to keep black people uneducated. Last in the old days... Mm -hmm. In the mm -hmm. old days, they kept black people unable to read or write. And in the late 20th and early 21st century, they deliberately, and that's key, deliberately kept uh, black people illiterate with respect to mathematics. And that was a handicap Bob felt that he should fight. Uh, that's, like I say, that's the compressed version of of Bob's thinking and the why of he connected math to uh, to civil rights. He was a longtime friend of yours. Final question. Yes. Final question for you. Um, first, two questions. First question is when and where did y'all first meet, um, and what did you think of him among your first meeting? And then first, go ahead. I'll ask the second go question. Ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I first met Bob in the summer of 1962. To make a long story short, I, I discuss it in a later book because there's a lesson in the circumstances under which we met. I was on the way to a conference for young activists in Houston, Texas, sponsored by CORE. I was 19 years old, and I got off the bus that was taking me there in Mississippi, and I met student activists who challenged me. They basically said, you're going off to Texas to chatter about civil rights when you're standing right here in Mississippi. What's the point of that? Uh, I decided to stay in Mississippi for a few days to, to, to learn more about what they were doing because they were telling me we're doing stuff here in Mississippi. And they put me up in their Freedom House. And one in the first evening there, I, I was engaged in this conversation with these young activists, and Bob was there. He hadn't been introduced to me, 
and was listening to the exchange between myself and these students. And then Bob said quietly, uh, well, we're getting ready to go up into the Delta tomorrow. Why don't you come with us? The Delta being the cotton country of Mississippi. And I decided I could do that. I was, it was summertime. I wasn't in school. I didn't need to go to school. I didn't need to go to a conference. And I went up there to take a look. And that's when I began my conversations with Bob on that trip in 1962 up into the Delta. And to make a long story short, I didn't get out of Mississippi for almost five years. <laughs> I wound up staying there in Sunflower County, Ms. Hamer's home county, uh, and working on issues of voter registration with, with people up there, and one thing led to another. And I'm having conversations with Bob all the while, because Mississippi to me, I mean, it was like a foreign country. I'd never been in a place like Mississippi. You know, until then, as a kid from Washington, D.C., all Mississippi meant to me was it was the place where Emmett Till was murdered. Mm -hmm. And so Bob is, and others are, are educating me, if you will, on their thinking about change uh, in Mississippi. And, and at the end of the summer, you know, I felt I, I couldn't just say to people I'd been working with, and in many respects, uh, getting their lives placed in danger. I couldn't say at the end of the summer, well, folks, it's been interesting, but now i got to go register for classes because uh, I was a student at Howard University, and I just couldn't do that, uh, so I wound up staying and staying and staying. It, you know, and uh, Bob and I became very close during this period because he and I were the only two people from the North working in that movement there full-time. The only other person was a guy named Frank Smith, a Morehouse student who came over from Georgia. So Bob and I, you know, had a running conversation as we're sharing experiences about early 1960s Mississippi. He really, in some respects, was the older brother, the big brother, teaching the younger brother about what he had gotten himself into. And that really uh, makes you close to a person. I, I think uh, soldiers who fought in wars will understand what happened. Last question for you, Charles. What do you want the folks watching and listening to know, understand, and learn about your dear friend, Bob Moses? Well, his intense commitment to organizing at the grassroots, his belief that the real strength of black people is found at the grassroots. And if you dig into black communities, particularly communities occupied or being lived in by the poorest of the poor, you will be surprised by the level of strength that you find there. And it is that strength that has always made change, progressive change, for black lives. Charles Cobb, always great talking to you, my brother. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. I want to go to Dr. Greg Carr now, uh, Howard University Afro-American Studies uh, professor. Uh, Greg, 
Um, I, I opened this up uh, saying a lot of people are watching going, I don't know who they're talking about. When we talk about civil rights veterans, we talk about people who have had major impact. So many of us only think about those who have had books done on them, who were major speakers, who frankly became the one thing that Bob did not want, and that was to be a civil rights celebrity. He literally walked away from the movement because he, he felt it was becoming more personality-driven. He was looked upon as a celebrity as opposed to the focus was on the work. That's right, Roman. Um, let me say first condolences to um, his wife, uh, Janet, to Maisha and all of his children, his grandchildren, and to my very dear friend and really one of my heroes, the great Charlie Kyle. My last memory of Bob Moses uh, is when, and to understand that group and that the Mount Vaux know what I'm talking about, having interacted with them so much, those young people who faced death, who faced down their fears and who became, through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the most remarkable formations of human beings struggling for human rights in the 20th century, remained together and remain together through this day. My last memory of Bob Moses in person was shortly before COVID. Uh, we were all together um, over at the Civil War Museum, as you just heard Charlie talk about Frank Smith, the great Frank Smith, who was on DC City Council for a long time and who now is the director of the Civil War Museum here, had thrown open their doors and they were planning that 60th reunion. And we went over to Ben's Chili Bowl in a break and I remember Charlie Cobb, Bob Moses, sitting side by side there at the table. And I don't know what one had said to the other, but I had never seen Bob Moses laugh. They were laughing like they were two teenage boys. And when you heard Charlie say that, you know, people who have been through war together, that's the feeling I always got and always get when I'm around. So to all of them, now, Cortland Cox, Dory Ladner, Karen Spellman, I mean, all, all of them, you know, my condolences. The beautiful thing about Bob Moses, and you know, I'm generally an animated person. I mean, Bob Moses, man, Bob Moses come in a room and the entire energy change. And in more recent years, like when Marion Barry, who was, you know, one of their first leaders after Chuck McDew, the second chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when he made transition, they gathered at Frank's place again at the Civil War Museum. And Bob Moses comes and you just feel that energy. He, he could calm everything down. And you're absolutely right. 1964, 65, he resigns in 64 from SNCC. And then he's drafted the following year. Even though he's five years older than the draft age, uh, the government set him up. He and his wife leave for Tanzania. And they stay there for the better part of a decade. He works in education, teaching, eventually in the government in Tanzania, setting up education programs. Because Bob Moses' thing was, it's never about an individual. And he definitely, if he didn't learn that from Ella Baker, he certainly got that re 
uh, reinforced with Ella Baker. The job of an organizer, which he called himself today made transition, the job of an organizer is to put themselves out of a job. That's Ella Jo Baker. And so when she sent him, as Charlie said, through the South, they were going to have a SNCC conference in Atlanta, 1960. He goes to Mississippi and he runs into a man who they all speak of with great reverence. I know his son. His son's on faculty at Chicago State in Chicago. And this is the great Amzie Moore. And Amzie Moore, Mr. Moore, who was over the Cleveland, Mississippi branch of the uh, NAACP, was interested in voter registration. And whether it be Charlie Cobb, whether it be Bob Moses, they will tell you to a person. You know, it was Amzie Moore and those local people in Mississippi. Eventually, then, they connect with another brother, C.C. Bryant, because Bob Moses promised in 1960 he would come back in 61. It is Amzie Moore who gets Bob Moses and then it says, I'm going to go to this meeting y'all going to have at SNCC, which Bob didn't go to. But he said, I'm going to go and I'm pushing voter registration. And that's what turns those young people to voter registration. And over the next four years, from 61 to 65, there's no more remarkable moment in the history of this settler state than what those young people, in conversation with and connection with the people of Mississippi, did. And it's we cannot overstate what they did. In fact, it's so funny, you're talking to, to, to Charlie Cobb. Charlie Cobb, in December 1963, wrote a proposal for something called Freedom Schools. And so the brother you just heard from is the, was the guy who said, we should bring these schools in here and jailbreak this education system and connect it to political education. And of course, he's following in the, in the footprints of and alongside Septa McClark out of South Carolina. And in Philadelphia, we're in our 21st years of Philadelphia Freedom Schools. And later this week, we're going to talk long and hard about Charlie Cobb. I, say, I mean, about uh, Bob Moses, and I'll stop with this for now. Because in 2002, when... Bob Moses and Charlie Cobb wrote that book, Radical Equations. I reached out to Bob Moses. I said, brother, will you come to Philadelphia? I picked this book for our Freedom School high school students to read. And we had about 200 some students, about 230 students. He was teaching high school, Roland, in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, this man taught at Harvard. He, he taught a class at NYU Law with my former colleague at Howard Law, Addison Francois. He wrote a whole book with some other folks on the fact that uh, education should be a constitutional right. He could have had his pick of any job at any university in the country. Bob Moses taught high school algebra in Jackson, Mississippi, among other places. And he sent word back, yeah, I'm, I can't leave my classroom, but I'll send my friend. And Dave Dennis came and spent time with us working through that book, which I encourage everybody to read Radical Equations. He eventually, about 10 years later, around 2011, 2012, he and uh, his wife, Janet, came to uh, the University of Maryland Eastern Shore where we were having Freedom Schools training and spent the day with us and into the evening working through his ideas and what he thought we should be about. I don't think I ever saw Bob Moses give a full-on speech whenever there were people around. Bob Moses would come in a room he was there to give a talk or be on a panel. He'd stand up. I saw him do this at the University of Massachusetts one time. My dear friend, Corey uh, Walker, who with Charlie Cobb organized a SNCC conference. This is around 2010, the 50th anniversary of SNCC. And then we all went to Shaw University later on that, 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 that year. He, Bob Moses stood up, walked down the middle of the aisle in this room, this conference room, had everybody count off one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Then took the ones, the twos, the threes, and the fours into four clusters to talk about the social problem they thought was most important, waited 15 minutes, and had everybody report out. Bob Moses organized, even at conferences, brother. I, I, 
He's a remarkable force. The, we, the reason we are walking through this, uh, Omakongo, Julian, and, and Faraji, uh, is because um, I believe, um, I really believe we, and I, this is where I'm speaking, right now, I am not talking about mainstream media. I'm talking about black-owned media. I believe, Julian, that we have made a significant mistake um, in this because what we have not done is properly and consistently introduce, um, introduce people, introduce our audiences to, to mm. these significant forces. I've often said, Julian, that the greatest mistake that we've seen from people is that we get so caught up in the hype of the major events, but we don't spend our time dealing with the strategy, the planning, the organizing, the mobilizing, all of those different things. And, and that, to me, is what it, it means when we talk about um, uh, giving people a, a, a full understanding of, of who Bob Moses was. Your thoughts? You know, one of the most important things Bob Moses did was the Algebra Project. Uh, I think that algebra is a gateway to all kinds of occupations, uh, from engineering, economics. Um, the Algebra Project, really, he took his civil rights passion and talked about mathematical literacy. And we know how many of our people get ripped off because they didn't read the fine print because of all of that. So in addition to his many, many accomplishments, I think it's really important for us to think about the Algebra Project in the context of what our people are learning, our young people are learning and not learning today. And we know so many of our young people are bathphobic. We know that teachers uh, do not encourage our young people. So th this man had an amazing vision to go from really being in the trenches of the civil rights movement to being literally moving with education and talking about algebra and mathematics. And he was funded for it, of course, and brought a lot of people in. Some estimates say as many as 40,000 to 50,000 young people um, took algebra because of Bob Moses. So even as we look at his civil rights legacy, we need to also look at his educational legacy and how important that was. Um, that right there, uh, Omakongo, I think is... Uh is what's, what's critically important. And again, I think that that's why when we do roll call, that's why, that's why when we have these Black History Month events, we have MLK Day, and especially on MLK Day, I consistently say to people that the national holiday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is not about him. The holiday and the statue really is a monument to all of the people who were involved in the movement. And I think we do a disservice when we talk about folks in that period, and we only say, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and folks stop there. They might mention Thurgood Marshall. They might mention Roy Wilkins. They might mention Whitney Young. They might mention Dorothy Height, but we really need to be explaining to people Septima Clark, right. Diane Nash, 
James Bevel, Ella Baker, Bernard Lafayette, who I'm going to talk to in a second, James Orange, Hosea Williams, Fred Shuttlesworth. And I can go on and on and on because, and yes, Bob Moses and Charlie Cobb uh, and, of course, James Foreman. I mean, we can go on and on because that's, that's, that is the movement. Mm -hmm. Roland, please mention a few more women. No, well, first of all, I said I can go on and on, Julianne. Yeah, after you did like 20 men. No, I didn't mention 20 men. And I did mention Septima Clark and Diane Nash and Dorothy Height and could have mentioned Merle Evers Williams and could I could have mentioned many of them. My whole point is you got to walk it through. So I did purposely mention men and women, but that's the whole point there. And I mentioned Ella Baker as well. I can do Constance Baker Motley. I can, I, I can go on, but my okay, point well. is, I did both. But the thing on Congo is that we have to expand the list of the names so folk know who Bob Moses is and they simply don't drift off into history. Mm. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, this morning I was watching MSNBC and in the last minute or 40 seconds, they paid tribute to, 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 to Bob Moses. And I was like, really? This, what we're doing right now, like you said, taking this time, drawing it out, we need to let people know in our community and in our run, the media that we do run, that we pick our leaders. We pick the people who are valuable to us, who we are going to pass on to the next generation. Seeing Bob Moses pass is, is very sad for me because coming from Boston, came up with my dad, you know, there, my family and his, and, and his kids, um, uh, Maisha with the Young People's Project, we've worked together. Omo Moses with Math Talk, we've worked together. And they're continuing on his legacy, which is great to see. But you're, but you're right, Roland. We can't let mainstream media, mainstream academic institutions, pick our leaders. No one's going to learn the truth about Ella Baker at these universities or on, the, on this television and right now. And so what Bob Moses is doing as he now becomes an ancestor is he's reminding us that it's not about who they say our leaders are. It's who we say our leaders are and what we do to honor them. We need more Dr. Greg Cars in this world who can just shoot off this history like sportscasters talk about basketball and football. And we need to elevate them so this never stops. It has to continue. Faraji? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with my brother there. I mean, one of the big things that I'm hearing from the history of Bob Moses is the fact of sacrificial leadership. I remember talking to Dr. Ray Wimbush, um, the author and the scholar, and he said when we had this conversation around Fred Hampton and, and, and the movie Judas and the, and the Black Messiah, he was saying to me, he said, Faraji, we don't have sacrificial leadership like we had back during the civil rights period. And, and to break it down for folks, sacrificial leadership are those individuals who don't see themselves as celebrities. They don't see themselves as bigger than the movement. They're not trying to brand themselves as movement leaders. These are folks who are serious about organizing people. They understand that fundamental change and generating power comes from unified people. And so when, when they are in the, when, when we look at individuals like a Bob Moses and all of the roles, all of the names that you, you, you shared with us, Brother Roland, I think it's important that we understand, especially emphasize for the next generation, 
if you want to make a change, if you want to really make a difference, you have to remove your ego, your personal idea, uh, interest, your personality can still stay there, but you got to remove the stuff that will distinguish you from other people and just fall into line and be among, as you mentioned, Brother Roland, be among the greats to not be seen as a big guy or the, you know, I'm this guy, I'm that guy. You just happen to be the, the one to push the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality along. And that's where we got to go. I mean, there is not enough conversation around sacrificial leadership. Even now, we still have this view of messianic leadership where we need somebody from the top, whether you and we're not talking about white folks, I'm talking about black people. We say, well, what about the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan? What about Jesse Jackson? What about Reverend Al Sharpton? And, and what are they doing? They don't need to do anymore. You got people that, like myself and many others that come on this show in particular, who should be out there? Should We should always be the ones running. And I remember, I'm going to close it like this. The Bible say what? That you have the older folks for counsel, the elders for counsel, and young for war. So while we, while we have those folks still among us, why not take advantage of the wisdom, the guidance, and the experience of them working in a very, very unjust system? One of the big things, and, I, and this is what I appreciate you about the generational talks you've been having, Brother Roland, is the fact that there's no other group of people that shoot themselves in the foot by denying their ancestors, their elders, and those who came before them, yep. like the way we as black people do. And, and one of the things that I had to grow and learn as I was an, as an organizer in Baltimore is that as a young person, I can't shoot myself in the foot and say, I don't want older people at the table. That's crazy. Yep. That's absolutely insane. And that is counterproductive to the movement of, of, of freedom, justice, and equality. I need to get as many elders to the table as possible. And those of like minds who have a great, uh, even of different views, you need to still come to the table because why? The, the, the movement for freedom, justice, and equality is, is paramount. It is more important than the personality of the organizers and the individuals who are helping to push the movement forward. One of the folks uh, you're speaking of is Bernard Lafayette, uh, who also knew um, Bob Moses uh, well. Bernard, it's always a pleasure seeing and talking with you. Um, share just uh, uh, some stuff about Bob Moses our, our audience may not know about. Well, um, let me see can I get this thing to work here. What happened? All right, so you're on, you're on the phone there. So just actually, do you have, uh, okay, there you go. You're, you're centered. Go ahead. Okay. Well, one of the things I want to say is that Bob Moses had a lot of respect for elderly people, but he had an equal amount of respect for uh, the young people. And he always respected us and listened to what we had to say. Uh, but more than that, he demonstrated and he acted in a way that we could follow. My going into Selma, Alabama was directly related to the fact that Bob Moses had gone into Mississippi. And even with all of his education, 
he decided to become uh, uh, a, a, a director of a voter registration project. And here's someone who had, uh, had a master's degree. And what did he do? Now, the thing that really amazed me about Bob was that with all that killing that went on in Mississippi, he showed no fear. And that is the greatest thing that Mar that uh, Bob Moses gave to us. And that was the example of his own behavior and what he did with his own life. And when he, uh, you know, went into Mississippi, he had all the confidence that he would succeed in what he's doing. There was never any doubt in his mind that he would not accomplish the goals that he set forward. And frankly, when I went into Selma, Alabama, it was following Bob Moses' example. That's what I wanted to do. There were other things that I could have done, but I wanted to do what Bob Moses was doing, uh, the way he carried out the movement in Mississippi and showed us the way. And uh, he never did get into any arguments or shouting uh, matches with people and all that kind of stuff. He always, and you could tell that he was always doing research and studying situations. You know why? All you got to do is look at his eyes. <laughs> no, look at his eyes, the pictures you got and everything. Yep, yep. You know what he was doing? He was studying. That's what he was doing. Look at his eyes. He was studying. So he showed us as young people that we have got to uh, continue. We can't come to any quick conclusions. We've got to continue to study situations and learn from those situations. And that is a quality of success. And I uh, can't say enough about him. And uh, he was very uh, unusual in that way, that he uh, did not try to boss us around because we were younger. Now, when you think about SNCC, you think about Marion Barry, well, he had already finished his master's degree. All right? Yeah. In terms of being the first chairman of SNCC. Okay? A lot of people get facts mixed up. But he was, okay, uh, thinking about becoming a, a, finishing his doctorate degree because he wanted to be head of uh, the, uh, the psychology department or chem chemistry department at the University of Tennessee. He already had a specific thing in mind, but he went to Washington, D.C. and, uh, what, <laughs> ended up being the mayor. But uh, the point is, uh, Bob Moses and others like him were good examples, and that's why we were able to succeed the way we did, because we were watching them, and they were also watching over us. Bernard, um, final, final question for you. Um, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 
a kid is going to come across a book or a documentary, they're going to come across a speech, they're going to come across some papers, and they're going to see your name, and they're going to see Bob's name, and the name of so many other, so many other people. Look like we lost Bernard. Let me know when I get, get to ask him that question. Um, uh, I can hear you. Okay, there we go. There we go, Bernard, you're there. So what, what do you want that kid 50 or 100 years from now to know about uh, your longtime friend and colleague, Bob Moses? I would want them to know, and I'm very clear about it, is that leadership is not bossing people around. Leadership is showing example by your own behavior. And by your own behavior, you are convincing them that they can achieve the goals that they set forward. Yeah, it's always a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Folks, so we have more tributes to Bob Moses on today's show. I'm going to take a break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk with Meg Kennard, a reporter out of South Carolina. Finally, the James Brown estate has settled uh, 15 years of drama. He's been dead 15 years, and finally they're selling the estate. Maybe now they can do what James Brown wanted to do. We're going to talk to her about that, more about the life and legacy of Bob Moses, uh, and lots more right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Don't change that dial, because trust me, ain't nobody else doing anything like we're doing tonight. Back in a moment. The same forces that are trying to pass these bills across the country here in Texas to, yes, suppress, to stop, to undermine the vote. The same folk that block you from having living wages are the same folk same that wouldn't fix your utilities problem. In this time, when our voting rights are under attack and economic justice is being denied. We're launching a season of nonviolent moral direct action to demand four things by August the 6th the 56th anniversary of the signing of the Voting Rights Act. Number one. End the filibuster. Number right. two. Right. Yes. Pass all provisions of the For the People Act. Fully restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Yes. And number four, raise the federal minimum wage to $15. Pass the For the People Act. That is the, the last best hope for voting rights, not just in Texas, but Georgia, Florida, and about a dozen other states passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill and the For the People Act. Let our people vote. The Latinx community is the rising electorate in Texas, and our representatives are threatened by these shifting demographics. Our pathway to citizenship, to a living wage, depend on our access to the ballot. This is not just a Black issue. That's right. This is a moral, right. constitutional, and economic democracy issue. Poverty is reinforced by public policy. And what happens in Texas, uh, as well as in America, we create policies that perpetuate poverty, and then we criminalize the poverty that we create. There's only so much we can take, and it's time for us to, to stand up and speak loudly against what's happening here. I think in Texas that it is time for a Selma-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think we ought to march from Georgetown to Austin. And we ought to come to Austin, but we ain't coming to Austin 
just for Austin. We come to Austin to save the Washington, D.C. Which side are you on? And don't tell us you can't do all of this. You must do all of this for the soul and the heart of this democracy. Forward together. Forward together. Forward together. Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in black-owned businesses, the black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it. Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And, and we're SWV. SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. It has been 15 years since James Brown died on Christmas Day. After a long battle, his family may have finally settled his multi-million dollar estate. Joining me now to discuss this is Meg Kennard, political reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, she is, of course, broadcasting from uh, Houston. Uh, Meg, uh, glad to have you uh, uh, on the show. Uh, so, I mean, God, 15 years, this constant back and forth, legal battles, children uh, who were not in the, uh, in the estate, uh, the money was supposed to be going to provide scholarships uh, to needy black children. Is this thing finally over? Hey, Roland, it's always good to see you and be with you. I wish I could say yes, although we've said that before. As you noted, this estate battle has been going on since James Brown's death on Christmas Day in 2006. We've had multiple settlements in the past. We've had those settlements then overturned in various courts, including South Carolina's Supreme Court. And so last week, we had an attorney who's been involved in the litigation saying, kind of out of the blue, honestly, I hadn't realized that this had been really going on, but saying that a settlement had been reached on July 9th, a global settlement that would finally, he said, put to rest all of the legal issues surrounding James Brown's estate. So while I think we can say yes, I'm still not sure because there have been so many ups and downs in this case for now 15 years. Um, and, and James Brown made it clear, we thought, how he wanted uh, his estate to be handled. He, um, he wanted an Elvis Presley type, you know, uh, situation, but also he wanted the money to go to black kids for scholarships. That's right. In his will, James Brown set out the creation of the I Feel Good Trust, which would have created scholarships for needy children throughout South Carolina and Georgia, as well as paid for the education of his numerous grandchildren. That's if he set out in his will on a Supreme Court last year, noted that they felt James Brown had been of sound mind when he created that will. And so that's something that they were adamant really needed to happen. Last year's ruling seemed to set forth the path for that trust to actually finally be created now 15 years later. So yes, that is something that James Brown wanted. And although we haven't seen details of this global settlement reached this month, I would assume that that's at least some part of it considering what the courts have already said. 
And obviously what often happens is with a lot of these celebrities, we saw it with Michael Jackson, they were actually worth more dead than alive. Uh, and so uh, I would assume that the James Brown estate through licensing deals, things along those lines, has been steadily growing and building. There's been some dispute about how much actually James Brown's estate was worth at the time of his death and including up until now. Estimates from between $5 million to $100 million. But there have also been attorneys involved in this case throughout who have said that there wasn't a whole lot of money actually left in his accounts and that many things had to be done to settle debts when he died. But you're absolutely right. There have been ongoing licensing deals for James Brown's music, as well as his image to be used in multiple commercial situations. Again, we don't know exactly how much money that has brought in, but considering the continued popularity of James Brown, I would imagine that there is plenty of funds wherever that money is going. Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully this thing is settled. Hopefully, um, you know, you, you won't have any legal battles because the bottom line is, it seems like the only people who are getting paid are the damn attorneys. <laughs> there have been a lot of attorneys involved in this case over the years. I was reading over some old stories of mine and one of my colleagues, Katrina Goggins, who covered this story for many years as well. And I was just digging through all kinds of lawyer names, people I haven't thought of in a long, long time. So you're absolutely right. That's how legal cases go. We can assume that the attorneys will have their stake, but also there are many members of James Brown's family who have been trying to access some of what they say should be left to them from his estate. Again, we don't know the details. Maybe we will someday, maybe we won't. Well, uh, we know that uh, you'll certainly be on top of it, folks. Uh, Mayor Kennard, she is a, a reporter out of uh, South Carolina for the Associated Press. Uh, and, let me, and let me also say, so I put, I put this tweet out, uh, Meg, uh, you are still battling breast cancer. Uh, our uh, uh, fans, they appreciate having you on the show. They're still praying for you and uh, uh, your family that uh, you will have a, a full recovery uh, as uh, you're there uh, in my hometown, uh, MD Anderson. Uh, and so uh, we, still, we still got your back uh, and, uh, and praying for a full recovery for you. Thank you, Roland. I really do appreciate you and all the fans out there. And I thank you all for your thoughts and prayers. They really do mean so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, the, you know, See you the, later. Thanks a lot. You know, um, on the Congo, uh, the, the deaths of Prince, Aretha Franklin, um, you could even throw in Michael Jackson, James Brown. I mean, so many people have talked about Again, folks having their wills, having their states uh, all together. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, it's like, goodness. It's like he wanted the money to go to scholarships, and, and the folks who've been getting the money, like I said, have been the lawyers over the last 15 years. Yeah, it's sad, man. We're talking 15 years. And with all of the kids mm -hmm. who could have benefited from that money, who are now, you know, adults now, and it's just really sad. And you start and you start thinking about people who may have been impacted during the, the COVID pandemic as well. Maybe you know arts programs were lost. And so a lot of wasted opportunities have happened with James Brown passing. And, and then we would have took like two years or many years before he was even buried. 
So I think that this needs to be a lesson for all of us, to be quite honest. I mean, when I'm thinking about someone's net worth, I'm thinking maybe like a $20 million difference, maybe like 80 to 100 million. People are saying between five and 100 million dollars. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so I think all of us who don't have even clearly the same level of stature, we need to all start looking at our financial houses. We've seen situations in, in, our, in our communities where uh, mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and fathers have died and the, their houses got taken, you know, by churches and banks and different types of places. If what has happened with the people who have you just mentioned have not been a wake-up call for all of us to get our house in order, I don't know what will. It's a real tragedy what has happened with him and what happened after he passed. Uh, 15, you know, there are a lot of people who were contesting uh, the will, people who were left out, uh, all of that. That's why I always get a kick, uh, Faraji, out of the folks who put in their estate. If anybody legally challenges this, you definitely get left out. <laughs> You on mute. I'm looking at the situation with uh, Michael Jackson, Rev. Roland, where they're still in court. I mean, they, they, Forbes just did a piece um, uh, just a few days ago about the fact that Michael Jackson, um, his estate is in court 12 years after his death and following eight years of litigation. Um, and they're also talking about whether the, the, the wealth tax would, uh, if that would apply to Michael Jackson's estate. I mean, when we, and I'm with my brother, like when we look at the the amount of money, and I correct me if I'm wrong on this, Brother Roland, but I saw an article, and I forgot who mentioned it, but they said that Michael Jackson made like crazy nearly a billion dollars after he died. And so when you're looking at that amount of money coming in, um, and, and then you got all of these people at the table, you got the lawyers, you got the family members and all of that stuff. And then you look at the will. I, I, I was surprised to hear, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I did hear, like, for example, that Aretha Franklin didn't have a will. Um, and when you look at a situation like that, it's, it's almost like you, we have to teach our people in, in particular about the importance of generational wealth, but we also got to teach them about wills, the importance of having a document, a legal document that will outline how the, your assets and your money and all of the, the things that you've acquired over your life, how that should be you know, distributed or spent or given away. There, there needs to be that. And, I, and there's not enough conversation, especially within our community, around these issues. And, and, you know, and I mean, we got to even go to back to the fact, Brother Roland, and I see this all the time, and I know this is not quite the same thing, but if you die, that you don't have to go to a GoFundMe, that you have life insurance, yeah. that you understand the importance of, of thinking about life for your family if you're not here. If we're not having those type of conversations, but we're talking, talk, constantly having conversations around getting money, but not necessarily knowing how to spend money, and damn sure no, not having conversations on how to save money in case something happens to us, then this is all for naught. Hopefully, Julian, there is an actual uh, settlement. I mean, I was looking through some stories there, and, and Meg is right. There were like multiple stories about settlement after settlement after settlement, and those before were not true. You know, Roland, black people are extremely uncomfortable about having end-of-life conversations. It's Come not on. just the will, although the will is very important. Uh, it's also about how you want to die. 
You have people who might be sitting in a coma for two or three months. They don't want to be in that coma, but they've never had a conversation with whoever has their medical power of attorney about, you know, cut this stuff off at a point in time if I ain't coming back, because otherwise the estate might be encumbered with tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of dollars of debt. Somehow, I, I have a friend, it's, it's not a friend, but, well, anyway, whatever, who actually has a list of what she wants to have served at her repast. But she does not have a will. You know, I mean, she has the whole menu. She knows who she wants to sing what at the funeral, but she does not have a will. But I'll tell you, um, as many folks know, my mom made her transition about a month ago. It was funeralized last Saturday. She talked to us before she even got sick. She said, this is who gets this, this is who gets that, and I don't want you little heathens fighting about anything. I mean, she was very clear. So if anybody's surprised, we didn't think that everything was necessarily fair, but it's what she wanted, it's her stuff. And so that's what we have to be able to have those conversations. But black people don't want to do that for whatever reason. You're going to die, y'all. You're really going to die. <laughs> you might not die tomorrow, but you will die. And so you might want to be the one to make sure that you have control over your assets. Here's the other thing. When you die intestate, which means without a will, depending on where you die, the feds or the state government can get between 50 and 80 percent of your property. Now, you've been wow. paying taxes on your life. Wow. But wow. the government can take your stuff because you chose not to mm. leave a will. So I don't care if you're 25 or 95. This is an important conversation. The drama around James Brown, Michael Jackson, Prince, call the roll. Did these people think they were going to live forever? <laughs> Folks, let's go to uh, Surrounda, Wisconsin. The Caledonia police officers on investigation after being caught on a camera appearing to plant drugs in a black man's car during a traffic stop. Hey, bro, what's that? What's what? That you just threw in here. What's the word? I got, I got you on camera, bro. I got you on camera. We're all good. Hey, bro, you just threw that in here. Yeah. The man in the video who goes by Glockbock, Glockboy Savu on Facebook shot and posted the now viral 16-second video on Facebook. He also posted this video confirming it was him watching it all happen. It's Savo, local rapper from Racine, Wisconsin. I am okay. I'm not locked up. I was detained for a little while, and they talk about investigation. I am the guy that you see going all over the internet, surf, the surfing the internet with the police trying to throw the bag in my car. I am okay. I did not get arrested, but I am taking legal action. I have contacted lawyer due to the weekend. It's not um, it's not going as fast as supposed to. The process is going a little slow. I have sent the video to news articles and every and everything. Well, after the video went viral, the Caledonia Police Department launched an investigation, and Police Chief Christopher Bosch posted this statement on Facebook earlier today. The Caledonia Police Department was made aware of a cell phone video that is circulating social media platforms depicting the actions of a Caledonia police officer. We were able to locate the call for service associated with the cell phone video. The Caledonia Police Department is conducting a comprehensive uh, internal review of the incident. All officers assigned to patrol duties are equipped with body-worn cameras, and preliminary information indicates the officers on scene of this incident all had their body-worn camera, body cameras activated. In addition, marked Caledonia police patrol vehicles are equipped with dashboard-mounted cameras as part of the internal investigation. We will be reviewing those videos. We will also need to gather information from all officers 
who were present. The complete review will take some time, but I have reviewed portions of the body-worn camera video. Please keep in mind that the cell phone video that is circulating depicts only a small portion of the entire encounter, whereas all available video may provide more context. The Caledonia Police Department believes strongly in transparency. Therefore, all body-worn camera video will be made available within the coming days. Please be patient. As there's a lot of information to review, please know that we are taking these matters very seriously. Christopher Bosch, Chief of Police. Now, folks, here's the body cam video of the officer who tossed the plastic bag in the back seat. Specs of green, you're good to search if you need to. Corner coat. What's that? What's the what word? I got you on camera, we're all good. Hey, bro, you just threw that in here. Yeah, because it was in his pocket, and I don't want to hold on to it. That's on their body cam that they took it off of him, so. You just threw that in here, bro. I got you on camera, man. I'm telling you where it came from, so. Camera, it's an empty baggie at the moment, too, so. Okay, buddy. So what you saw there uh, is, again, the body camera footage of, of the officer uh, throwing the baggie on. Now, if, if you look at that video, but then look at that video, um, Faraji, that gives a different perspective because we see in the video where he goes to the other officer, he hands him something, and then he tosses it and says, I don't want to hold it. Now, I don't understand why that was the case, why he said, I don't want to hold it because that's why you have evidence bags. You could, I mean, I, so, but this is precisely why body camera footage is important. This is why officers should, every police department, every law enforcement, I don't care if it's a school board, I don't care if it's a school district, county, whatever, should have body cameras because if somebody says, hey, this guy planted drugs and the officer's body camera shows, no, that's not what happened, that's, that's why you have the cameras. If you have to, I'm sorry, we simply cannot just accept the word of these officers anymore. You got to have the footage. Yeah, I, I, I mean, here's, the, here's the part I'm trying to understand is he had, he said it was an empty baggie. So why not? He said he didn't want to hold it, but he wasn't holding it. He apparently he asked from the other officer that, uh, you, you know, for the bag. Second thing is, okay, if you have an empty bag, then why don't you just bring it to the attention of the passenger? Why don't you just say, hey, look, hey, this we found this in a car, it's empty, just just do something with it. I mean, you it looks suspicious. Now, I get it. At first, I was like, ah, I don't know. But I, I just, I'm not understanding here 
why that why this officer decided to 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 do what he did. He looks suspicious as hell, Brother Roland. Real, he just looks suspicious <laughs> as hell. But he, here's the big thing about this whole situation. This is exactly the reason why black folks get anxiety when we come around police officers. Because we don't know what's going to happen. We, you know, I often hear from police officers, well, I was always, you know, I'm feeling like uh, my life was threatened, my life was in danger. How do you think we feel when you pull us over? You know, and I mean, it doesn't matter. And when you have a police officer who is throwing stuff into your car that could potentially incriminate you for something, and he does it so nonchalant, like what? 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 what oh, I, I got you on camera. I got you on camera. I didn't want my partner to hold it. I mean, it's just so nonchalant. But it's that those type of moments that can either get us locked up or killed. And, and 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 we just can't we just can't uh, risk those type of moments anymore. We we I mean I'm glad that they want to do a, an investigation, but just the simple fact that the officer made a judgment call like that, he should be dismissed from the force. Absolutely. Juliana, go ahead. Absolutely. No, I mean I think the brother's absolutely right. This is ridiculous. First of all, there are evidence bags. There are all kind of reasons that he did not have to throw that bag in that man's car. All kind of reasons. Uh, who knows what would have happened had the, uh, the gentleman um, who was driving not said, I got you on tape. You don't know what kind of trace evidence there was in that bag and where the trace evidence came right. from. Come on, Doc. You know, this Come is on. an absurdity. It is a total absurdity, and it's enough. I mean, this is why... Um, and forgive me, brother, if I pronounce your name wrong. Is it Faraji? Um, yes, yes, Faraji. Faraji, this is why you were so animated about this, because black people, black men, and especially young black people, encountered this crap all the GD time. And these folks are making judgment calls. They're doing what they feel like. They have no sense of accountability. That police chief is a wuss, a W-U-S-S wuss. I mean, this, oh, well, we go investigate. He ought to be able to say this was out of order because it was out of order. Now, whether it's dismissal, suspension, take you behind home for a few days, I don't know. But to the, he was doing Mr. Bojangles around that. And meanwhile, this young black man, frankly, was terrorized. Omakongo? It's, it's, it's really unfortunate, because when you look at that body cam video, it looked like two or three police officers touched that before it went into the back of the seat. And so we talk about simple conversations about how to, how to handle evidence, right? And, you know, my, I have three children. My oldest are, are 15 and, and 12. And they know we're getting pulled over to pull out the video cameras because of things like this. You see the brother in the front seat, the officer's probably thinking he's just texting, but we have to make sure that we're recording. And I do believe that the fact that he was recording is the only reason he wasn't arrested. And we saw, we see this so many times across the country. I'm sure we all remember a case a couple of years ago where officers in Baltimore were carrying different types of things that they could plant at scenes to arrest people. And so it's about time that people stop having to wait for these video camera footage to start believing that things that these are things that happen to us every single day and we need real accountability and those officers definitely need to be investigated in some way shape or form because if they're handling things like this whether they were actually planting stuff or they're just transferring stuff between them we can guarantee that they're doing this on a regular basis and many of us have probably got screwed over because of it so i'm glad these brothers are safe but it can't stop here 
All right, then. Folks, uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, he hosted a virtual town hall meeting with his constituents. Let's just say one of them, she really <laughs> let him know what he need to, what he should go do. For that, we'll go ahead to our next question now. Mrs. Alexis Toon, you are live with the Senator. You can go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Senator. I am a proud Kentucky citizen, and I just wanted to tell you to get fucked. All right, we'll go ahead to our next question. <laughs> Y'all pull the panel up. <laughs> oh, Bacongo, um. <laughs> you know, pretty much. Man. <laughs> Look, when you couple that with the video that surfaced of the guy who confronted Tucker Carlson, you know, in a grocery store or something like that, these folks are just, folks are pissed off. And it's about time that these guys are hearing it. You got a guy who's a doctor who's denying the vaccine, denying masks, and the people of his state are suffering. And these people just don't care anymore. They are being blunt and they have no fear of repercussions. And the response of the colleague taking the calls was just was just priceless, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> Faraji, the call is Alexis Tune. The caller posted the exchange on TikTok saying for some unknown reason, they called and asked if I'd like to join the town hall Q&A. So I took the opportunity, and I ran with it. <laughs> now, it's not clear, it's not clear what Toon's issue with Rand Paul is, but he's been criticized for the stances he has taken during the pandemic. Um, yeah, I guess uh, Alexis, like, I'm gonna let you know, you need to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the video has since been removed, y'all. Uh, that was that was good. That was good. All right. Speaking of good, my man Drew. Y'all remember Drew comments? Drew, Drew was a big supporter of Kamala Harris uh, during the campaign, and Drew dropped used to drop these really great ex explanatory videos. Well, he had to drop one on COVID that was just golden, and I had to play it. Yo, 150 million full vaccinations given out in the U.S., and I'm one of them. Moderna gang, my boy. Why'd I do it? Pretty simple. Deadly pandemic. I ain't trying to die. Vaccine, 94% effective after the second shot. Sign me up. I've been hearing from virologists and ICU physicians, most of whom look like me. My mind was made up. Not to mention nobody gave me a good enough reason not to do it. You don't remember Tuskegee, my boy? Yeah, I do. And I also remember in that same instance, black men were refused treatment. But look how fast they made it. They didn't test it. That's cap. First off, they started phase one of human trials for Moderna back in mid-March 2020. Plus, three things contribute to vaccine development usually taking so long. Funding, manpower, where the starting point is. These are the same factors that go into dating, but that's a conversation for another time. Let's first look at funding. Medical research costs money. Most of the time, one of the biggest challenges is getting grants. But that wasn't the case this time around. With the exception of the state of Georgia, the whole world closed down and researchers had access to all the money in it, which leads into the next advantage they had. Incredible manpower. Usually these research groups are pretty small with a handful of folks. With COVID-19 taking top priority in the world, the entire global medical community researched it together. At the same time, and shared notes, that with 100,000 people pretty much immediately volunteering for trials. They have more manpower in the comment section of a Kevin Samuels video. 
Anyway, third part is your starting point. mRNA is new, but it ain't that new. It's been studied for the better part of 30 years, going back to the early 90s. I'm talking about days of mama said knock you out. Some of y'all too young for that. Technically, I am too. But you don't even know what's in that vaccine. And it be causing Bell's palsy and autism and making women infertile and having miscarriages. Big Cap, New Era Cap, Michelin Ness. In my Moderna vaccine was messenger ribonucleic acid. Lipid nanoparticles such as SM102. Polyethylene glycol 2000 dimeristoglycerol. Cholesterol. And one, two, distilrol SN glycerol 3 phosphocholine. Trimethamine. Trimethamine hydrochloride, acetic acid, sodium acetate trihydrate, and sucrose. Bruh. Ain't none of that causing Bell's palsy, autism, or infertility in women. Look, this is how they work. The mRNA goes into the cytoplasm of the cell and gives instructions on how to make the spike protein found in the actual COVID-19 virus. Your own body creates the spike protein, then creates antibodies that can beat it when and if the real thing shows up. So in athlete terms, the mRNA shows up with game film. Your body then creates a scout team and can strategize against and beat up on in preparation for game day, just in case there's a game day. So really, we didn't even talk about vaccination. We talk about practice. As with any vaccinations, there are minor risks. So talk to your doctor. They're gonna tell you the same thing. Then go get your shot. Because it don't make sense to be more afraid of the vaccine than you are of the actual virus. That's bass backwards. Reese is always talking about how the White House and the DNC, how they need to learn how to put stuff together that's relatable. That from Drew breaks it down for a lot of people, Faraji. Uh, he lost me after he said, what's up? I mean, just simply because he talks too damn fast. Okay, but Faraji, you can't put up a five-minute video. The, the, it's, it, come on now, it's like... I get you. No, it's two hey, minutes. Look, look, check this out. If you're trying to, if you're trying to encapsulate a vaccine about during a mass pandemic in five minutes to give people uh, this kind of like, oh, we're gonna get them quick snapshot of what it takes of why this vaccine is important. You're talking about people's health and well-being. We're having the whole country is fractured because of this vaccine. A five-minute video where a black man is talking. Yeah. Because because here's the deal. Because, frankly, the, 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 no, because let's just be real. The processing of people today, hell, ain't five minutes. It ain't two minutes. Hell, it's barely 30 seconds. So what he's doing is he's applying, he's taking the, the application that makes stuff go viral and is applying it to this, dropping the music, using certain keywords, buzz phrases that make it interesting, like the Dayton quip, the Kevin Samuels quip. And that's one of the reasons why this thing's already garnered more than two million views. I get that, but you know what that also sounds like is propaganda. How? Just because it doesn't give people a chance to think through the information. How? You just All they gotta do is replay it again. Yeah, but like, okay, that's a decent point. Information Wait, hold up, Julian, he's talking, hold on. Roger, go ahead. When he's talking about the ingredients for the virus, you see them big words. Big words. Okay. Then you want people to stop your video, look up the words, look up the impact on the human body, the whole nine. 
it takes away from it. I mean, I get it because style is, the style is good. The music, you got Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's kind of funny. He's looking a certain way. He rocking the Kamala joint. I mean, he's doing the whole thing. But this is a very serious thing. But we here's the deal, but here's the deal, though, Faraji. We got people yeah. on Macongo who, who don't want to take the vaccine. They ain't hell, they ain't watching this show. Okay, they ain't watch. We've had more than a hundred COVID segments. Hell, they not watching actual news shows. So you got to figure out how can I greet somebody to at least get them to even think about it. Who's sort of sitting here scared about it on the fence? I'm a Congo go. I, I think that is great. I think that is we need more of it. Whatever it takes to reach different people, we got Juvenile doing Vax that thing up, whatever it takes. And look, we all have listened to music where we're like, hey, what's that word KRS one just dropped? Stop the song, play, go to the dictionary, figure it out, go bump the chong again, right? And so with TikTok, and this is the way a lot of the young people communicate nowadays. That's why it has 2 million views. And the fact of the matter is, this gets to a different group of people who are going to receive it in a different way where some of us may not be feeling it. And so I'm going to be finding that link and sharing it because I think that is part of the, 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 the real, I don't even want to say propaganda, the real programming that we need to do to get more people vaccinated. I'm, I'm with it. My Julian, kids will love it when they see it. Julian, go ahead. I think the thing was brilliant. I think it was great. We've got this information coming five or six different ways. This is yet another way. It's not the be-all and end-all. But as Congo has said, there's some people who have not gotten the vaccine. I don't think, uh, Faraji, that people are sitting around saying, let me write this word down and look it up. I think that what he does by dropping all the ingredients is giving himself some credibility. Look, y'all, I researched this. You know, I'm not just some dude who's telling you to take the vaccine. I researched it. So, you know, we have in our community j just over half who have not been... Well, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but... Not enough of us has been vaccinated. Um, we had to cancel um, our basic our wake for my mom because we didn't want to be a super spreader event because we too many people were not vaccinated and people would not tell you that they were not vaccinated. They lied. And we just said, okay, we just can't do this. Um, we can't do the repass. So, you know, I think, I, hey, I, I'll prop to the brother. Omicongo, when you find that link, you send it to me uh, because I'm going to get it out there too. It's, it's, it's just another way of saying the same thing we've been saying over and over again. Hell, I'm, I'm prepared to pay people to take the nerd vaccine, give people money. The Maryland's doing the lottery. I, you know, I'm just so disgusted right now with the fact of people who have all these reasons why they won't take this vaccine, and then some of them are dying because this new Delta variant is killing people. But you don't want the vaccine. I go with your bad self. Well, and, and, and the numbers of what we were seeing is, uh, numbers are significant, especially with the Delta variant. Uh, we're seeing 90-plus percent of the recent hospitalizations are a result of unvaccinated people uh, being hospitalized. We are seeing right now unvaccinated people begging nurses, please give me the vaccine. One nurse from Arkansas said, baby, it's too late. I can't. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing. Uh, how many of y'all saw the story of the um, uh, uh, the conservative talk show host Phil Valentine? He wasn't an anti-vaxer, but he damn near said everything uh, by saying, "Don't take it." Now his ass is in serious condition. Now his family putting out statements saying 
he now is encouraging his listeners to actually mm -hmm. take, take the vaccine. Here's the deal that I keep saying. Ain't no flip side to death. Now, if you want to chance that thing, okay. Y'all, I, I, I got black people sitting here in, on my Instagram page, on Twitter, talking about Dr. Sebi, uh, and they talking about take, take this and drink that and take this. Okay, I got all of that. All I'm saying is this. This is all I'm saying. Death is death. I ain't trying to die early. Hello. <clears throat> I'm not. Hello, I'm not. But the second piece is, even if I don't die, I am not trying to have diminished lung capacity. I can't, mm -hmm. hell, I ain't gonna be able to walk a golf course or, hell, walk up a flight of stairs. I mean, I know people, my attorney is dealing with the after effects a year later, still deb it's debilitating. And so, and here's, again, if you don't want to take the vaccine, that is your decision not to take the vaccine. But if your ass end up on the ICU, because mm -hmm. you got COVID, Hey, that's on you. Hold on, hold on, Faraji, go ahead. Real, real quick, let's look at a couple of things. One is, is that people took the vaccine. People are getting conflicted information from all types of places, whether it's the CDC, Dr. Fauci, hell, even the president like, said, like, oh, like, 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 what, like what? Like what? Like the president <laughs> said in that town hall, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. That's not true. That's not true at all. And so here, the, C and so here, the CDC is just trying to figure out the mask mandate in this country. Okay, here so, here's, so, here's, yes, so here's the deal. Here's the deal that if people had watched this show, they would have understood this. The mistake that people are making is that they think, oh, I've got the vaccine. I'm good. You could come talk in my face. I can go wherever. Right. No. But no. the CDC, there no. is, but, 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 hold, hold, but, but let me watch. There is no 100% foolproof guarantee. That's why there are but people. But that's not how it was presented. Uh, okay, but, but first, but again, but, 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 but again, though, but hold up. But again, mm -hmm. though, what you had was, and this is part of the problem, part of the problem is that you had governors, CEOs, other politicians putting, reopen, 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 reopen. Businesses are failing. They're dying. America's going to hell. There was massive pressure being applied. So then you had your public health folk who were trying to deal with that but also make sound decisions. They were trying to mm -hmm. juggle. What we said on this show... We, 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 the efficacy, Johnson & Johnson was not 88, was 81%. Moderna, mm -hmm. Moderna was 94. Pfizer was 94%. That was the efficacy. Not one of them was 100%. We then had the scientists from North Carolina A&T on who talked about, here's the deal, 26% of the people who get the shot may get COVID. So you're absolutely right. Part of, part of those decisions on not wearing a mask 
were political decisions based upon pressure because you had these Republican governors and Democratic governors, again, business people who were saying, we gotta end these mask mandates, people not coming out. And the, and the sort of problem is, the real problem is, we got too many damn Americans who are impatient, who don't wanna follow directions, who don't mm -hmm. wanna listen, who wanna yell freedom and liberty and all that stuff, like the 34-year-old black guy we showed last week, okay, mm -hmm. who was mocking Twitter, right now, he dead. Mm. He dead. But see, I, yeah, I understand it. Hold on, Ju Ju Julian, 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 hold on. Finish your point, Faraji, then I'm going to Julian. Faraji, go. Just very quickly, I, I wanted to say that, like, if we're looking at all of the, 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 the culture right now around COVID, around just simple things of mask wearing and washing your hands, and I'm agreement with you on, on that point, Brother Roland, that folks act like that. But the CDC came out, when this vaccine was first presented, it was presented as a supplement, not as a solution. And now, it was, then it was presented as the only solution, which is not true. There are, there are, I don't think America has done enough research and has been truthful with the American people that there are actually other remedies for COVID-19 that exist in the world. Check out ivermectin. That's happening that, that was used down in Mexico that cut the COVID cases by nearly 50%. So when we're talking about this, this is a government, unfortunately, we're talking about the same government. They can't even come to the point of, of saying that January 6th actually happened. Well, of course not. They can't no, no, of course not. You can't so, do, so, you so can't do that. You can't do that in a, in a nation where COVID has been politicized from the beginning. So the problem is, the, so, the pro, so the problem is in this country, depending on who's in charge, you folks believe. So what you have is you have folks who are largely on the right who are driving the narrative, can't trust it, oh my God, shove it down my throat, all stuff along those lines. Julian, go ahead with your point. First of all, the science has been changing. We have this new variant. And that's what I think we have to keep remembering. Gavin Newsom, the government, governor of California, initially said, Okay, we're back. And then we saw numbers going up. When we saw the numbers going up, that's when he said, you got to put your mask on. So on this campus, as an example, when I got hit campus July 1st, um, you had to wear your mask indoors, but not outdoors. Yeah, I think that was indoors, but not outdoors. Now you must wear your mask all over the campus. People are saying it's confusing. It's not that confusing. The numbers are going up, and we don't know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been. But last point. This is a public health emergency that we are all going to pay for. Roland just said 90% of the people who have now been hospitalized are people who have been unvaccinated. But guess who ends up paying the public health bill? All of us. If you want to maintain or contain your tax responsibility around public health, you might want to put your GD mask on. Seriously, we're all going to pay for this. This is, this, this, this is, this is the, the struggle the struggle with this Omicongo has been this. And, and we just got to go ahead and just be honest. There's sheer arrogance in America where I can do what the hell I want to do, mm -hmm. when I want to do it, how I, I want to do it. You can't tell me nothing. 
You can't mm -hmm. tell me what to do in my church. You can't tell me what to do in my mosque. You can't tell mm -hmm. me what to do in my temple. You can't tell me what to do with my children. You can't tell me I got freedom and liberty. I can say what I want to say and do what I want. That you got all that going on. Yep. In the in we'll the, in, the, in the, and here's the deal. This is the point that I keep saying. There are consequences to one's decision. Rick Dennison, mm -hmm. Rick Dennison is an assist was an assistant head coach with the Minnesota Vikings. The NFL came out and said, people, these are the people who are in tier one. Tier one people must be vaccinated. He said, I ain't taking a shot. They said, Rick, no problem. Thank you for coming. Fired. They established the rules. That's the deal. Right now, there are people who have worked at hospitals who are pissed off today because they said, I'm not taking the vaccine. The hospital said, no problem. You're fired. Now they mad. Well, guess what? There are consequences to the actions. And so we are in the situation we're in now because Americans, after six, six months, they were like crack addicts, didn't know what to do. They were like, they were like, they were like a dude who dropped his Viagra uh, on, uh, on the ground and was looking around like mad. That's the problem because folks in this country are all about... We're freedom. We're free. You can't tell us you infringe upon my rights while six, more than 620,000 people have died. It, it's, it's really sad. I mean, we have become slaves to our freedoms, plain and simple. We've let them dictate everything that we're going to do. And I would add to everything that you said that you just said is part is, is the problem. The also the other problem is the lack of knowledge of history. Because going back to the to the flu of 1918, we saw the same thing. People started to let their guard down and it came rushing back. Even in places like San Francisco that was doing the best in the country at that time started to let their guard down. We don't know our history. But look, I'm tired of seeing these stories of people who are saying things like, I'm healthy, I don't have any underlying conditions, so I think that I'm good. Well, how about the fact that you can catch it and pass it on to my grandmother who is immunocompromised or you can pass it on to somebody else in your family? The level of selfishness and arrogance. You have the right to not take it, but you also don't have the right to make me sick or my kids sick or my family sick. And quite honestly, we got to add this racial lens to it, Roland, and you've already been talking about all of this. When this first came out, there was this all hands on deck, we're all in this together. Even Trump was saying we're all in this together. Then the data started coming out showing that black and brown people were affected more, and then all of a sudden it was Michigan, all these places, open up my state, free my rights, my body, my choice, pulling off of the, 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 the pro-life, you know, movement and all of the other type of stuff, right? It, and, that, and now the Republicans are seeing now that it's affecting their constituents more again. And now these governors, KIV and all of them are saying, mask up. If people really cared about each other from jump, we'd be in a different situation right now. And so you're right. The government has opportunity. Private enterprises, they are making these decisions. You don't want to do it. These NFL players are about to experience that right now with these new NFL rules. There are going to be consequences to the action. But the biggest consequence is your death. 
and the next consequence is other people's deaths, and then a third consequence, as we have our economist here, Dr. Malvo, there's an economic impact to the community that we all know are gonna, we're gonna feel it worse. I live in Southeast D.C., and I believe that in, in Ward 8, we are like less than 30% vaccinated, and in like Ward 2, where people are wealthy, it's like over 70%. So now that they have access to this vaccines and the like, we're still not taking the precautions we needed. And are we taking the precautions with everything else and the social distancing and the mask and all of that? No. We are slaves to our freedoms and we're suffering for it tremendously. Bottom line, here's, bottom line, here's this here. Again, if, folk do, if an individual does not want to take the vaccine, that is their prerogative. The problem that we're seeing right now, Faraji, is with the variant, which the A&T professor said was said in April last year was going to happen. What we're seeing which now they, is they also said the vaccine is not effective against. Right. No. No. Because 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 first of all, what he said was, he said viruses once they interact with humans, he said they come in in one form. And then they may veer off and distribute it in another form based upon how how who they come in contact with. So the point, mm -hmm. so so he said we're going, he said we're going to be in a situation where we're gonna be chasing uh, different variants for quite some time. What he laid out though was that, and we're seeing this right now, of the hospitalizations happening right now, 90 to 100 percent are as a result mm -hmm. of unvaccinated people. Exactly. Brother Roller, is it possible that the United States government, not, not, and when I ask this question, I, I want us to think through it. Is it possible that the United States government could not be telling us the full truth about, not COVID, because I believe COVID is real. I mask up, I wash hands, I do all of that. But is it possible that they could not be telling the truth about the effectiveness of these vaccines, especially when you have a company like Johnson & Johnson, who is from the talcum powder to the mishap, they had a 15 million doses right here in Baltimore City a few months ago where they messed up with the doses there, to the fact that these... I mean, is it possible that some things may not fall into place? Here's the deal, though. Is do, that do, possible? No, here's the, the deal. Here's, first of all, first, first of all, anything can be possible, but do you have proof? I mean, I mean, I, well, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I could literally... I could literally ask that question about everything. I could literally, I could literally ask that question, is this possible? Here, here's, what, here's, what, here's what we do know. When the issue with Johnson & Johnson came up, there were people who said, there were other countries who said, we're not going to use it. There were people who said, no. So what we, have, we, what we have not heard, we have not heard the same level of problems with Pfizer and Moderna's uh, vaccine as we have with Johnson & Johnson. So... Bottom, bottom line is this here. We've had, we put on numerous, I mean, we've put on numerous doctors and scientists who are black, National Medical Association, down the line, for this very reason, for this very reason, in order to, 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 uh, in order to go through this and deal with this here. Bottom line is this here. If you're out there and you're skeptical, okay, that's fine. If you don't choose to take it, fine. But if you get it and die, sorry, shame on you because your family is now impacted. And we're now seeing these stories where these family members are just in tears and crying because they lost a, lost a loved one 
And I read a story the other day where there are married couples where one dude said, he said, I feel like I'm cheating on my, on my wife because I'm trying to sneak out the house to go get my shot because the wife is absolutely adamant against it. I saw, I had a tweet earlier from conservative Eric Erickson who's talked about, he said his children got their shot on Friday. They threw up on Saturday. He said by Saturday evening, it was like nothing was wrong. And there were people who were telling him, you put your kids through that? And he was like, through what? I want my kids to be around. I mean, so, again, options are there. If folk don't want to take it, that's on them. But you're playing with Russian roulette. I ain't trying to sit here and check the hell out early. Over some, and I'm like, and yeah, your ass is going to mask up. You're going to practice social distancing because they, not, you got folks who let Eric Clapton, I'm not performing at any venue that's going to require people to show their COVID passport. Okay. Well, go sit your punk ass and sing at home then. Thank I just read a story. 500 bars in San Francisco have formed an alliance requiring proof of a COVID test, COVID, uh, uh, proof of COVID vaccination before they let them in the bar. I mean, I'm sorry. At some point, you got to be a hard ass on this because people are actually dying. People are dying, and not only that, <clears throat> people are impacted in so many other ways. Roland Clapton is a hot monkey fool, and he could just be a hot monkey fool in his house by himself. But the fact is that people pay attention to some of these folks, and because they're paying attention to them, you have the, you know, the people who refuse to get tested, who refuse to take wear a mask. I want us to have, I've been on two planes lately, four planes lately. I want us to have a, a COVID passport. I don't want anybody sitting next to me on a plane, even if they're masked, who has not been tested, has, doesn't have the vaccination. We know what's going on with this. And I don't understand, I mean, with all due respect to my brother, who is very passionate about what we may or may not know, we know this, people die. Now, the United States government is no paragon of virtue. We know that full well. Uh, we right, know there have right. been experiments like Tuskegee, uh, Henrietta Lack. We all know that. That's why I got mine. I let white folks be my guinea pig. We used to be their guinea pigs. I let them be my guinea pigs. So after they had gotten tested enough times, then I said, okay, I think I'll do it now. But um, the, the fact is that we, we know what's happening. And I, it, it really breaks my heart when I see some of the things. I just had a, a young man who um, actually, San Francisco State is now going to be closed in the fall. Cal State LA, we're going to go. We're going to go back to hybrid. We will be open, but there's all this hybrid stuff. But this young brother had moved himself from Atlanta to San Francisco to go to school. He's uh, in his 20s, so he had a little money. Got an apartment, bought some furniture, and now he finds out that the campus is not going to really be open. So he's not going to be able to get his money back uh, from his landlord. You know, he's bought this furniture. He might be able to send some of it back. And he's a young man who basically had the passion, dropped out of high school, went back, got the GED, did a couple years of community college, da da da. You know the story. And it's these are the unintended consequences of what's happening because people don't want to wear a mask. You know, all the stuff. It's, it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. You know, I when I took, uh, I had Moderna. Um, it was unpleasant. 
I was sick for a couple of days. My temperature went up and down and up and down, and I couldn't hold anything down. All right, I'm fine now. Two days, I laid in the bed and read books. Um, and people, some people will have a reaction. But that's what happens with vaccinations. Some people get a reaction from the flu shock. Uh, maybe, um, my brother, there could be more research done. Faraji, maybe there is, could be more research done. But we know this stuff works. I wouldn't take the J&J &J either, by the way, for any number of reasons. Here's but what... The Pfizer and Pfizer and Moderna are effective at 94 or 94.5%. That's called damn effect. Again, again, but that that's on the original COVID-19. Then you talk about your variants, but I'm just going to give you this here, folks. Uh, 52,000 new COVID-19 cases a day, a 61% increase from a week ago. That, that is scary. All right, y'all, you know what time it is? <laughs> On my property. Whoa! Hey! Some white folks just cannot stay out of black folks' business. This black woman was trying to deliver goods to a customer when a white woman thought it was a drug deal. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this. Just gonna, I was just giving you a heads Listen, up. ma'am. You said this is hair extension. Why are you doing it here? Because I can. It's a public park. It's a public park. You own the park? Can people pick up here? It's just a pickup. Okay. It looks like a drug deal. I don't care what it looks like. Call the police. I pay $50,000 in taxes. I pay my mortgage. This so is do how it at your house. Lady. If that's your house, to. do it at your house. If there's a problem, okay. tell someone. Okay. Thank you. I was trying to give you a heads up. Get a heads up. Okay, Thank you. I definitely appreciate it for the hair services. Thank you, love. Happy with you. Anything else? I will. Thank you. just will not leave for how the hell are you gonna tell somebody what she should be doing what McCongo go ahead anybody who grew up in the hood or been around the hood or or watched a damn movie rule number one you don't confront a drug dealer <laughs> first of all if you think somebody's stealing drugs I'm not going to be the one to step to them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yo, these cats are so emboldened. It's just like, we, it's, it's ridiculous. I'm just looking out, 
It's like if she was, you'd be she she'd have got pop. I mean, seriously, these guys will look for any opportunity because they know they're being you know videotaped now, and so they're gonna come up with anything to try to make themselves look innocent because they know they're about to be viewed five, ten million times, and they're gonna be the next person in this Karen video, and so. Folks really just gotta just start minding their business and don't approach any suspected drug dealers. Rule number one. Bomb lines is here. Um, my position. Get the hell out of my face. I ain't even. No I ain't explaining a damn thing to this woman. I'm like, get the hell out of my face. I'm, yeah, I'm serious. I, I'm just not. I'm just like. I feel I'm. I'm not trying to explain jack to these Karens. I don't need to justify a damn thing to you. Your ass want to call the cops? Walk your punk ass on and call the cops. <laughs> I'm just cracking up because I don't even... The rule of Macongo should not be don't approach... Don't approach black people. We don't want to talk to you. <laughs> there you <laughs> we, go. <laughs> you know, just, just, just go away and find yourself. We don't want to talk to you. You know, if you feel like you need to call the police call them, and then your behind is going to get arrested. Because there should be a law that says when you empower the police to harass black people, you go into jail. Do not pass go. I mean, that was just ridiculous. This woman, and she, she's standing on her privilege. She's standing on her privilege. Sister girl gave her far more time than I would have given her. And for more, far more courtesy, because there would have been a whole lot of witches and MF's coming out of my mouth. I absolutely, Faraji, I need laws passed. If y'all call, a, if the, these Karens call a cop and they show up and it's some BS, they should cuff their ass and take it right to jail. There you go. There you go. First and foremost, bro, I'm still tripping off of the caption, assuming Annie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new title. That's a new title. No, real talk, like, the whole situation was just wrong. But if you listen to the white woman, she said, I heard there were some reports by some of the neighbors saying that there was somebody selling drugs in the park. And 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 so all it takes is like the, the childhood telephone game. You take, you put one message out there, and next thing you know, when it gets around to another person, that's a whole different message. And again, I mean, we were kind of laughing at it. But this is the type of situations that can get people really in trouble. You can get locked up. You can get thrown up. I mean, who knows if that white woman would have called the cops on that system? Then what if? How would have that? You know, how would have that situation had just kind of gone left real quick? And, it, and it's unfortunate that we keep having assuming Annie's right out there. That's always looking at. It. The, the question is, where are the videos of black people doing that to white people? Mm. Can we get can we get some of those videos? That's the part I'm looking for. I want I want I want you know uh, 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 you know um, disturbing Daryl or something to come through <laughs> and, and and talk about what white people are doing and then what you building in the neighborhood, man. What what you what you what you doing here? What, have disturbing Daryl go up to the to the to the, to the Asian people and say, okay, this is your market. This is our community. Who who gave you permit to to open up your corner store here in our neighborhood? I mean, I want something different because this is absolutely ridiculous. Again, uh, I ain't in I'm telling Roll up on me, see what happens. <laughs> Letting y'all know. Roll up on me, see what happens.
All right, y'all. Uh, we are having issues getting Diane Nash and uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. James Lawson on the phone. So we're going to try to get them on tomorrow for our Bob uh, Moses uh, tribute. We appreciate the folks who are on today. Greg Carr, Charles Cobb, as well as uh, Bernard Lafayette. Folks, tomorrow I'm going to be broadcasting live from Austin, Texas, where we will be uh, beginning the effort uh, to uh, fight for voting rights. The march is taking place. Uh, the kickoff is tomorrow. And, of course, they begin on Wednesday. We'll be live streaming that, so check back. Uh, just simply turn on your notifications on YouTube and Facebook uh, and Twitter as well. So when we go live, you immediately are notified. If you want to support what we do here at Roland Martin Unfiltered, please join our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing at least 50 bucks each, $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day, uh, to make all of this possible. Your support really matters to us in a huge way. And so please support us via cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. I'm Okongo Faraji Julian. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Folks, I will see you tomorrow from the great state of Texas. Roland Martin Unfiltered, live in Georgetown, Texas. See you then. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.